Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Top Insights from the Best podcast. My name is Zorian Rotenberg, and I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Infotelligent, and I'm also your host today. Our podcast features CEOs, sales and marketing leaders, industry experts, and also investors, and you will hear their stories and unique insights about accelerating revenue and growing your companies better and faster. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Infotelligent, a sales and marketing platform that helps you win more sales and accelerate your revenue with buyer intent data powered by AI. On today's episode, we welcome our guest, Brent Gleason. Brent is a former Navy SEAL. And in this episode, he will talk about his battlefield and combat lessons, how they apply to the world of business, especially to the role of a chief revenue officer or chief sales officer as a leader to the sales teams and about things like becoming mentally tough and lessons from the Navy SEALs who go through the hell week, lessons about leadership, lessons about getting teams to click together and changing your people. A lot of interesting insights here. And Brand is a successful entrepreneur and a book author. He wrote a couple of books. One is called Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change. And another book that's coming out called Embrace the Suck is the Navy SEAL's wave to an extraordinary life. I think Embrace the Suck is something that a lot of us in the business world can do and become more effective in our work and life as well. So with that, I would like to welcome you, Brent, to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, for making the time. And Brent, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Glad we can make this work. Uh, yeah, quick backstory. I grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas, did my undergrad at SMU, and then I worked in a wonderful world of finance for a year until I followed one of my fraternity brothers on his radical journey of nautical nonsense to become a SEAL, and by the grace of God, made it through the program, which in and of itself was you know, quite a, a life-changing uh, endeavor, and then that was right before 9-11, so 9-11 actually occurred two days before my class segued into the advanced portion of SEAL training, or also known as SQT. And that's when the entire mindset and, of course, the culture of the special operations community began their significant transformation going from peacetime SEALs to wartime SEALs and did several combat deployments and then transitioned out to graduate school and the similarly painful world of entrepreneurship. <laughs> Probably not as physically painful, though. So just a couple of questions here. So Navy SEAL, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question, like, is it as hard as we read about in the books and see on TV? In all seriousness, in many ways, of course, books and movies and videos don't capture, uh, obviously, many of the emotional and physical elements of the anxiety, the pain, the stress, the fear of failure. It obviously gives you a pretty good idea. And the, the statistics alone are enough to help people understand uh, why the attrition rate is so high. That mixed with some of the visuals you see in movies or videos. But the interesting thing is it's, it's a pretty fantastic experiment of mind and body, almost like a social experiment. Because it's a level playing field, and NSW has spent millions of dollars and years on research trying to identify the mental, cognitive, physical, and emotional attributes of students more likely to successfully navigate that training funnel. Because, quite frankly, we need more SEALs, or we want more SEALs, and we can't make the training easier, obviously. So, we've been trying to put better, think of it from a sales funnel perspective. We need better leads in the top of the funnel so that we can close more deals. So we still close about the same amount of deals. <laughs> so that strategy hasn't necessarily worked, but we've gotten better at you know marketing and recruitment. And a lot of people had a hard time with that at first because we had to lift the veil of secrecy and mystery on the Naval Special Warfare community. But if people don't know about us and don't know what our mission is, then how are we going to go get great candidates? It's definitely challenging. It's one of the most challenging selection programs in the military in the world. So 
I'm obviously trying to be slightly facetious because it's well known. It's extremely hard. Let's be honest. It's like the hard, probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest in the overall military, right? So like, for example, tell us a little bit about, is it the BUDS training, the, the scuba diving exercise? Well, th there's many evolutions and it's, it's a different journey for each individual. I mentor young men through the program, not a formal initiative, but informally. I've mentored about five guys and I have a new one I just took on. So it's different for everyone. You know, some are, are great runners and they're great swimmers. So they're not, they don't have that risk of failing some of the evolutions because those times get more and more competitive as you go through uh, the training. But your first phase and second phase, you have multiple pass fail evolutions. And for most of them, you only get one or two tries. So if you fail once, you cannot fail again, or they will either drop you or roll you back to another class. So one of them, the first one is the 50 meter underwater swim. Uh, a lot of guys fail that. And the other is drown proofing. A lot of guys fail that. Those are in first phase. And then when you get to second phase, you've already been through Hell Week. So you're wearing that fancy brown shirt. It's very coveted. But you haven't gone through what's called pool comp yet. Uh, and that is one of the most challenging obstacles, I think, to your point, in second phase in all of BUDS is the underwater scuba stuff in the pool. Uh, yep. Because you're getting your ass kicked by instructors while having to think critically underwater to reset, restore your air supply. And you have to do everything they told you in order. And if you do it out of order, even if you succeed in reestablishing your air supply, you fail. So I guess I'm really kind of pointing to this for everyone listening. I mean, we have listeners who are senior sales leader, chief revenue officers, CEOs of uh, companies even as big as $500 million in sales and above, startup sales leaders, et cetera. Let's put it this way. Any given day in our life is not quite as difficult as what you've been through. That's what I'm kind of leading to. Uh, Hell Week, is that the one where you're sitting in ice cold water kind of holding hands with all your Navy SEAL buddies and they give you donuts and hot coffee just to get you out of there? Well, that, that happens, but just to, I'll give you a quick you know, 30 seconds on Hell Week. It, it's usually about the fifth week of what's well over a year-long training pipeline. Obviously, we front load that on purpose so that we can weed out candidates that are uh, not likely to continue on in the course. And uh, it starts on a Sunday evening, ends on a Friday afternoon. You get about two hours of sleep that entire time. And when you are allowed to sleep, you're not really sleeping because you're in so much pain. You're shivering so violently from second stage hypothermia. Um, you're basically just sitting there with your muscles cramping. Uh, so it's not really sleep. But usually you'll lose half your class. Let's say you start with easy math, 200 students. You'll lose half your class before Hell Week, leading up to the, those weeks leading up to Hell Week. You'll, then you'll go into Hell Week with almost every single person, sick, injured, or both. And then you'll lose almost everybody else by Tuesday night to Wednesday morning. Nobody quits after Wednesday. You're too delirious to even know which way's up or down. <laughs> so, it's, uh, but yeah, the, the goal is to keep you freezing cold, wet and sandy the entire week with no sleep. Sand gets on the inside of your clothes, so it like sloughs your skin off and it's not fun. <laughs> yeah, and I heard that they give you donuts and, and hot cup of coffee or something and say, listen, just quit right now. Go ahead and quit. Go ahead and quit. In order to see if anybody's sort of weak enough to do that for, for that donut and hot coffee. And a, a lot of people do quit at that point. So like whoever's staying is the toughest of the toughest, right? They're, they're looking for people who are, who are starting to transform. And I mean, not in a good way at first. The instructors are singling people out or they're saying he's not going to make it. So they literally come up and they offer you a way out. Hot blanket, hot coffee, some donuts, hop in the trunk or the, the truck and we'll get you warm and dry. And, guy, you know, guys, in that moment, guys like, screw it. <laughs>
But an hour later, when they're warm and dry, they're consumed with regret because they could have not listened to those internal and external voices and carried on. It really builds character, obviously, and it's very difficult. So as a segue, let's kind of talk about building that mindset and being mentally tough. Like, what is it that you've learned from the Navy SEALs training and being a Navy SEAL that you think could be parlayed into the world of business, especially sales and especially about being mentally tough? Well, you learn a lot about yourself just going through any adverse situation. Uh, this obviously taking it to the ultimate extreme. I think, quite frankly, you know, the, the joke, once you get your trident, you go to a team and the, the work and the job only gets harder. I mean, the days are longer, combat's painful, and it, and it really doesn't compare. Once you look back to training, you're like, Buds was a piece of cake compared to being a career SEAL, combat SEAL, in those types of situations. But what you learn, obviously, is several things that I write about in the new book. I know we'll talk about that in a minute, but you learn how to use pain as a pathway to achieve what I call that positive aggression. So you're channeling painful, adverse situations, be they emotional pain or psychological pain or physical pain, and finding a way through and being intentional in how you use tools and mindsets to expand your comfort zone. Uh, and the more you do that, the more you get into a routine of doing that and accepting the tough situations you're in in life, whether they be in the military or in entrepreneurship or sales or business in general, and learning from those moments, kind of debriefing yourself as you go, applying lessons learned, and being in a constant state of Kaizen, which is the Japanese term for constant improvement. Those are some of the real takeaways that I've learned from special operations and then applying many of those to the world of business and entrepreneurship outside of the obvious ones, which are stress management. <laughs> compartmentalization, and I mean that in a healthy way. And the other is learning to focus on what is in your control, not wasting time and energy on what is outside of your sphere of influence. Uh, how often do we waste so much time and energy on the why me, why now, or why that sale not close, or why that big account cancel their contract? And at some point, once you've done a quick uh, level of due diligence, you realize, well, there are elements out of my control. Move on. <laughs> focus on what's in your control. Get back up and move forward. This is awesome. And I think I, I'm going to want to ask you later about stress management and compartmentalization. But, and I also do want to talk to you about your book uh, and about taking point leadership. But before then, please tell us some really interesting combat story. Anything you are allowed to tell us about real combat or something else that's just going to get listeners so <laughs> excited that they're going to stay and listen to your, to your information about your book and everything else. Well, it's and it kind of kind of goes into what we're talking about is you don't really know what you're made of until you're put in these adverse situations, whether they be hell week or in your first gunfight in a close quarters combat situation. Uh, and you also don't realize if you've done the proper preparation, how well trained you are until you get to use that training. Uh, so our task unit from SEAL Team 5 was actually the very first task unit of 40 SEALs deployed into Baghdad. We got there in March of 03. So literally right after the city fell. And so we were, you know, one of a few special ops and special missions units in and around Baghdad, Ramadi, and Fallujah, essentially hunting the bad guys. We call those capture or kill missions. I think we might call them raids, but basically hunting down guys on a deck of cards, blacklist, other various, you know, potential insurgent faction leaders. And I can tell this story with somewhat uh, of levity because we all came came back from this op that night alive and well. We got the bad guys. But it was, it was crazy uh, because it was our first gunfight. So I'll tell you a quick segue leading up to uh, the moment of that gunfight. We uh, Typically what we would do in our camp is we work with uh, the agency guys, OGA, CIA, et cetera. 
And they would be, we used to kind of outsource our intel gathering. We brought some of that in-house now. But they would come to our camp every day, a few times a week with a possible new target package. Basically, this bad, bad guy's apparently going to be at this location this night. These are his movements. We've got intel on ground intelligence on where he's going to be and when. And so we'd, we'd work up a mission package and a plan. And if it got approved, we would sometimes this happened every single day. Sometimes we'd do two in a night. Uh, the op tempo was super high and the rules of engagement weren't quite what they are because we didn't have the infrastructure back you know, back then. And uh, so we, you know, and the intel is not always perfect, as in the battlefield of business and life, <laughs> especially when you're paying for the intel. That's when things can get a little like, is this source reliable or is he just looking for five grand to put in his pocket? Right. And, uh, and then who is this bad guy? Is he really a bad guy or he's just like, you know, guy who, you know, cheated up with his wife, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so we roll into this neighborhood, you know, we hit the first target. Back then we were doing predominantly explosive breaches. So using explosive C4 breaching charges, hit the first target and, you know, flooded it. And we were finding, uh, we were, you know, doing what we do in the house. We weren't, but it was a dry hole. Nobody was there. And then I remember being on the third floor and over comms over the radio, you know, our, I think it was our chief or platoon commander, basically said, you know, get out of the house, collapse back to the vehicles. It's the wrong house. So sometime while we were in the house clearing the target, the source or one of the agency guys was like, hey, guys, this, this isn't it. This is the wrong. It's that house, three houses down on the same street. So we'd blown this door off this house at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, so everybody in the neighborhood's awake. Oftentimes, because it's so warm outside, people are warm just in general. People sleep on the roofs, too. So you got all these shadowy figures looking down at you from the roof. Oh, we're now falling ass down the street, carrying our ladders and all our gear. And so we get to this other target. Now, of course, everybody's awake. You know that the house, if it does have bad guys in it, they've had the opportunity to get themselves in barricaded positions with their weapons. Weapons. So, oh, my God. We do another explosive breach, have what's called a failed breach. It didn't blow the door all the way. There was a metal security door behind the main door. Also a good sign there's bad guys there. So we had to go to a manual breach, which was great for me because I was a new guy and new guys carry all the heavy crap. So in addition to all my other gear, I was carrying a 30-pound gas-powered metal cutting saw on my back, which I finally got to use. So it was great for me. Um, so we, But again, manual breach through cutting through metal takes time, which gives the enemy more time. On the inside. Oh, story short, we get in there and we're, you know, some guys are peel right. You know, my fire team goes left and we start moving our way up the, up the staircase. It was sort of a traditional foyer with a spiral staircase that goes up to the second deck. And then we start taking heavy AK 47 fire from two enemy shooters from a barricaded position from the top. So not only was it about 12 feet away, but they were in an elevated position. So a very uh, dangerous uh, position to be in from a combat situation. Um, but in that moment, obviously, we talked about this in the debrief and the after action review. It was pretty fascinating because not only did everybody react the way they were trained, immediately rifles up, return fire, communicating with one another. My rifle jammed twice in a matter of five seconds because we had been told to use this different type of graphite lube. And <laughs> so I had to transition to my pistol. So we're communicating. And I remember, too, that uh, and then we had to we weren't uh, making progress. And guys were literally trying to push up the stairs to get more into the gunfight <laughs> as opposed to out of the gunfight. And that's when something seemingly awful happened. Our corpsman, who was standing a couple steps up to me, corpsman, your medic, you know, one of the most important guys on the team, he gets, he gets hit. And he goes down hard and starts sliding down the stairs. And so our point man at that time, who was 
guy who was Marco and the SEAL Team 6 team leader who wrote No Easy Day, he collapsed. He said, collapsed back down. We came back down the stairs. We dragged this guy Nelson with us. And we hit the first floor and then Nelson like shuffled us off and got back up to his feet. And we're like, we're like, bro, what the hell happened? I thought you were dead. What had happened was we didn't find this out till the next morning when we were prepping gear for another op. His, uh, cause we were still in a gunfight. He had taken a AK 47 round right, the, right an inch above the lip of his helmet, ricocheted up and blew his left NBG, NBG or night vision goggle tube off his helmet. <laughs> Holy <laughs> He was half an inch away from getting his face blown off. And anyways, we lobbed a bunch of grenades up over the balcony and went back up and finished securing the target and got the bad guys, eliminated threats. And uh, But it was a, for being a first experience like that in a close quarters situation, it was pretty intense. That's incredible. I think for anyone leading sales or in sales in general, probably listening to this, no bad day of taking a lot of no's and losing any deals can compare at all to this. What a story. With that, let's talk about your, I mean, there's a couple of things, your book. I'd love to hear about your book. Um, and then I want to hear about your organization. Taking Point. You wrote a book. Tell us more about that. Uh, my first book was Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change, which is a book about, it's like a modern take on change management, change leadership, leading an organization through any type of transformation. Obviously, from you know Navy SEAL perspective, similar to the new book I share, uh, a lot from the special operations communities, organizational transformation initiative since 9-11 on some of those key learnings, uh, how they apply to modern business. What, what a lot of what we do now at Taking Point is leadership development, organizational development, and you can't change a leader, a team, can't change anything in a, in a team without changing the people in the team, depending on how significant that change needs to be. Uh, I really became interested in the idea of writing a book more about personal transformation, which really does tie nicely into watching a young person, a young man in this situation, go through SEAL training from the day they show up. <laughs> they look so just innocent and green to the day they're a hardcore tattoo-covered, muscle-bound frogman. It's just like, that doesn't even look like the same person at all. And their attitude's different, and they're so emotionally mature and professional most of the time. And so I started doing some research within the self-help category, which I never read any self-help books and I started looking to see what's out there. And I was like, this is interesting. There's some, there's some good stuff. Obviously, very, very hot. It's like one of the most popular categories and genres of books out there, of course. But it's a lot of fluff. It's a lot of happy talk. It's a lot of books that don't even really tell you what to do. Uh, they just, or maybe they're well-written. They have creative stories. I love Mark Manson's work, The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. After you've probably heard of that book. It sold millions of copies. And because it's counterintuitive and it's creative in its approach, as opposed to some of these other books that are just like, just a bunch. I just read two pages and <laughs> toss it over my shoulder. So I wanted to write a really similar to Mark Anson, really got more counterintuitive approach to personal transformation. More of a, a gut punch of a book that's kind of no a no nonsense, no BS guide and battle plan that actually takes a person through the journey of learning how to embrace the suck, which is the title of the book. It's the military terminology derived originally born in the Marine Corps. We've, of course, adopted it in SEAL teams. And that's what our instructors used to tell us in going through training. And so uh, the book's titled Embrace the Suck. Uh, the subtitle is The Navy SEAL Way to an Extraordinary Life. And it kicks off with a really intense forward by uh, my friend and former teammate, David Goggins. I'm sure most, if not all, of your uh, audience will know who he is. We went through buds together. We were in the same 
same boat crew in Hell Week together. And that's what I started learning about real intensity <laughs> to maybe even an unhealthy degree. <laughs> I want to talk to you about David Goggins in a minute, but, but please go yeah. ahead. Yep. And so, and the book is about several things. It's about being intentional in your craft in expanding your comfort zone, leaning into adversity, not shying away from pain and suffering, being more accepting of it, uh, and learning how to plan for your goals better, learn how to execute better, learn how to debrief better, and be in a constant state of course correction, all in efforts to reassess your values, align your values with living the life that you want, giving more of yourself to causes greater than yourself, and ultimately living a more fulfilling, meaningful, purpose-driven life by leaning into pain and adversity and taking more calculated risk and managing your list of regrets. The last chapter is about living with the end in mind. We're all going to die. So the chapter that said, the title is, we're all going to die, so get off your ass and execute. Meaning stop saying, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Or I was thinking about pursuing that goal, but I don't know, it's, it's too risky. We have a big say in how our lives unfold. And we have a big say in the list of regrets we're going to have you know, the day we pass on to hopefully something better. Actually, from your book, right? Like, I mean, Embrace the Suck. I mean, I love the title. G- give us a couple of insights. I mean, you mentioned a couple, but how do they directly apply to being in sales, but also to sales leadership, senior sales executive? Let's say you're on a, you know, 200 person sales team. It's a very hard job, right? You have board of directors demand specific growth goals. You have a CEO who may not have been in sales themselves, right? So they don't know how hard it is. It's constant stress. And, you know, a lot of us, we're constantly, you walk on pins and needles because even if you're growing a company at like 80% growth, which sounds incredible, but maybe the board wants 120% that year, right? Or or like, let's call it you're growing at 30% and the board wants 50%, right? And it's like not good enough, even though you're doing a lot of, you're putting a lot of effort. I'm just making up sort of like these numbers, but. Give us like direct examples out of your book, how to deal with that and how to embrace the suck. Well, and again, a lot of these, a lot of these experiences I write about in the new book, Embrace the Suck, are, are not just from what I've learned, you know, as a combat veteran, as a SEAL, but what I've learned in the arduous journey of entrepreneurship. So okay. when I got out, I went to graduate school and then I launched into another endeavor that has like the same failure rate as SEAL training, if not worse. <laughs> so, I've made all kinds of... What, start, starting a business? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, to your point for the audience, I, you know, I've been a CEO more than once. I've been a CMO, a founder every single time, you know, I've had boards. We've raised millions of dollars. So, you know, it's yes, I've been the person at the top, but not always exactly at the top when you have a board of directors. There's also a board of directors, depending on how voting rights are obviously are distributed. But even passive investors on a board, they're not that passive if you're not hitting the numbers they think you should be hitting, as you know. So many By the way, my examples, I just realized, are kind of like not very good because even if you're growing, that's a good thing. Let's say bad examples, like there's probably far worse things than growing a company at 30 or 50%. Whatever the, the example may be, like, yeah, tell us more. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to make sure the no, audience... It's, it made me think of actually a lot of our clients, you know, for taking point. We have one, they're a yeah. global medical device company, now owned by a Japanese company, and they are, if nothing else, a sales organization. Sales driven. It is all about the number. And we've struggled with that to a degree because it impacts their culture. It can impact morale. It can impact, you know, internal competitiveness and silos that, that, that come with that and a divide between, you know, sales and operations and research and development. You know how that works. They almost always hit 75% of the number. And that's just, that's because the number is always a stretch goal every single time. 
yep. and them, they've accepted it. They've embraced the stuff of that reality. Because I told them, I was like, just think of the 75% as the number. <laughs> Don't tell your board I said that, but it's a mindset shift that people have to have. And you know, when you think about sales, sales is an extremely can be an extremely stressful job because it's the most measurable position in an organization. You're selling or you're not. You're closing deals or you're not. You're driving revenue or you're not. It's not the most important always necessarily because sales doesn't necessarily drive profitability uh, and employee retention and, and having a great culture and customer satisfaction. But if you're not selling, you're not driving revenue and you're probably not being able to pay for all the other stuff. <laughs> so yeah, You're out of so business if you have no sales. A lot of the stuff that's in the book really goes into a lot of our coaching mechanisms for executives and CEOs and, uh, and VPs and middle managers on how to, like we, we did a session today with actually that client I was talking about, ironically, and with uh, like 40 of their uh, new mid to, to senior level executives, including the CEO who was on. And it was about resilience. It was about uh, motivation theory. And it was about leading change. And we did this in a few hours, obviously virtually over Zoom. It's part of a longer term program. But we're also wrapping these things into the new normal. I mean, as we know, the modern, fast-paced world of business was complex enough before COVID came along. <laughs> and now, many of the core tenets of leadership and management and sales, marketing are not necessarily different. We have to approach them in a different way, approach them with a different mindset, especially when it comes to managing remote teams and engaging employees that were already disengaged. Digital transformation, uh, that we're all being forced down that path. I mean, it's actually pretty fascinating. Digital transformation in most organizations would might take two years, depending on what it is, and would take, take a couple months because <laughs> there was yeah. no one else. So, yeah. and there's sort of there's a lot of things in the book that teach. There are the same models we teach on planning, execution, debriefing, uh, mentorship, and coaching. Uh, so, understanding how to motivate both yourself and others. Those are you know really important things when it comes to dealing with adversity in a complex environment. So, for example, like a sales rep listening to this. They just missed the number in Q3 uh, a couple months ago. They're not doing great. They're going into Q4. The sales pipeline is low. Things aren't as awesome. It's COVID. How do they, in your words, embrace the suck? Give us like one or two tactical actionable items. Well, I think one, it's up to that person's manager too to help them identify some new tools, some new methodologies when it comes to rebuilding that pipeline. Doing more with less, obviously, is always a challenge, especially when Sales reps don't feel like they have the resources to get out there or they feel that the landscape has changed so much that there's just fewer opportunities to get in front of potential you know, customers and clients. But really, it's, it's about getting more creative in their own marketing strategies, even building their own, taking the time to build their own personal brands via social media or LinkedIn and doing more intentional networking. One of the things that we kind of coach some of our clients on, a lot of them being very sales-driven organizations, is due to COVID and working remote, we all find ourselves, some, some of us are working somehow more than we were before <laughs> because we strap into our computer at 7 a.m. and next thing you know, it's 8 p.m. And which I guess is great, but oftentimes our teams are doing just as much work, but they're doing, they're needing to do different things, which requires a new clear objective, you know, for that sales rep, uh, a new plan, you know, for that sales rep, whether that their manager develops it or they develop it in a collaborative manner, which I would encourage that to be. But then also taking the time of things they're not doing, like being on an airplane or spending time in a hotel or at conferences that aren't happening anymore and use that time to do different things like building their, their social network, intentional networking via social media, trying to become more of a thought leader in their space, 
Uh, yeah. You know, this could become writing or spending more time learning uh, about the industry or, or other types of innovations that could potentially help either themselves, their team, or the organization. Yeah, and a lot of people are down this year. I mean, it's it's a tough year on many levels. Tell me just very actionable things like mental toughness. Like, obviously, not everyone can go through Navy SEALs training to become mentally tough. What yeah. can people do that's not Navy SEALs training at work right now or at home working? There's several things. One, I always, just based on my background and who I am, I and this isn't just my perspective, but is one is engage in more wellness activities. You know, people's mental health is challenged right now. People feel isolated right now. People are having financial challenges. Uh, people are having marital or relationship challenges. And all these things are even more intimately connected than they ever have been before because of this environment. So one is better sleep habits, good wellness activities. So if you're not super active in exercise and wellness, I would say start doing that or increase what you do on a little bit better consistency. We also tell our clients to, and their leadership of remote teams to make sure people are taking small breaks. They're not just strapped in. Don't stack meetings back to back. These are organizational resilience initiatives that impact the individual's level of, uh, of resilience and mental fortitude. So a lot of them are just small, very tactical behavioral elements on working from home best practices, meeting etiquette, communication etiquette, but also for, for the manager of people is finding ways to be more empathetic too and communicating differently with your team members uh, or with your peers based on yeah. the fact that everybody now has a completely different work environment. Completely yeah. different. So those are just some very tactical things that we've encouraged people to do. But exercise more, good sleep habits, take short breaks, don't stack meetings back to back to back, which just was which is a basic meeting etiquette thing pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. But, well, j- just little things like that. And also, you know, making time for other types of things like reflection or reading or journaling or spending time with your family. So those are all things that really help people balance more now than than ever, I think. It's worked for me. So those are great. So is that what you do at taking point leadership for organizations? Is that taking point leadership at your company? Is that what you do for organizations? You advise them and consult them on these things? Yeah, we, we do a mix of things and just quick, you know, my first two companies were more technology companies. One was a home finding search engine, the other was a digital media and analytics company. And what I found in my entrepreneurial journey wasn't necessarily a passion for those specific industries, but a passion for building great organizations. Again, it hasn't been without Lots of pain, tear, anxiety, and <laughs> costly mistakes. But I found a real passion for good people practices and engagement strategies and building a great culture. And not just a culture of your workplace environment, but a culture designed to achieve desired outcomes. That's where a lot of organizations get it wrong. We do a lot of work in that area. Is You can talk all day long about culture and employee engagement, but unless your, your rituals and, and your beliefs and values and guiding principles and behavioral mechanisms are designed to have people take the specific actions to achieve desired results, then you're missing some pieces along the way there. Oftentimes, those elements are kind of done in a siloed fashion, and they don't really connect all that well. But a strong organization that really falls under the premise of high performance blends all those nicely together. And they have behaviors that are tolerated and behaviors that are not tolerated. So we do a lot in, obviously, leadership development from senior to, to mid to even frontline contributors uh, and understanding how to enhance leaders' ability to engage their teams. That's a premise of high performance. Uh, a lot of culture transformation initiatives and a lot of organizational development initiatives that you know get kind of tactical all the way down to you know tweaking operating models and 
um, and just streamlining their processes and best practices. Usually it's a combination of all of that because any organization, whether mine or someone else's, uh, can always improve in those areas. Very interesting. You mentioned earlier something about to change your team, you got to change your people. Can you give us some insights on how do you change your people? Because some folks could argue that you cannot really change people. Tell us more about that. It's Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I struggled with in my transition and becoming an entrepreneur is because usually when you're a new entrepreneur, you don't know You don't even know what you don't know. <laughs> you don't know anything. You're some eager grad student with a business plan who thinks that their idea is the best white space. It's going to be like, you're going to crush it, retire at 35. Yeah. <laughs> you only hear about those rare instances where those types of things actually happen and you, and you think it's common. Um, no, this is a battlefield wrought with, wrought with pain and mayhem and dismemberment. And so we, you know, I found that I struggled, for example, that, and this is going to shock you and the audience is apparently you cannot manage, manage um, millennials per se the same way you do a SEAL platoon. Who knew? I didn't know that. And so I'm kidding, of course. And so I had to learn how to manage multi-generational workforces and improve my level to be more empathetic and work on emotional intelligence and be better at not just accepting feedback, but requesting uh, feedback. So I think simple tools, if you want to talk tactics on, first, you can't change people's behavior in the organization unless you understand what the behaviors are, what their perceptions of themselves and you are and the organization and what motivates each specific individual. Uh, we talked a lot about that today in our session earlier is in, in motivation theory is a lot of times what we think motivates our team. Let's say you have a team of five, whether you're the manager of that team or just a team member, most of the time, the individuals in that team are all motivated by slightly different things. There's the yeah. hygiene factors, there's, and then there's the more motivational elements of doing great work and achievement and empowerment and authenticity and, and the, the role that you have in the organization and understanding what that role is. So when I say change the people, I'm not really talking about changing their personalities per se, but yeah. understanding uh, under, you as if you're a manager, understanding what motivates them, understanding their, their current level of engagement, and and then working with them on enhancing in those areas and making sure that you're connecting them to the overall narrative and mission of what the company's trying to accomplish. And so they know exactly what their role is and how they help drive mission success. And that doesn't always work. Uh, you're going to have, you know, you have three types of team members in an organization. You have your, you're engaged. So they're, as we'd say in the SEAL teams, you're all in all the time. They go above and beyond. They take on tasks and projects outside of their job description there to help the person to their left and right just as much as they help themselves and, and the organization. Then you have your disengaged. They kind of fall in the middle bucket. It's not good, not bad. They kind of do the bare minimum. They understand what to do, not necessarily high performers. And then you have your actively disengaged. These are the, the agitators, the people who work against the organization, who have a toxic voice and who bring things down. And those people, if it's not coachable, need to be removed as quickly as possible. When you understand those different elements, and you can do these through surveys, can do it through one-on-one -on -one conversations. There's plenty of tools out there to understand employee engagement level, sentiment, yeah. culture elements. But using that data, you can take a data-driven approach to understand what you're working with and then how to frame initiatives that will mold certain behaviors and create what we refer to as behavioral norms and expectations. At least that way, people know, here's what we expect of ourselves and others in this team, in this organization, as it relates to our culture and what we're trying to accomplish and the results we need to achieve. Here's what will absolutely not be tolerated. And there's nothing in the middle. There's no favoritism. There's no 
well, these people kind of get this attention, these people get this attention. And then you have to be very, very consistent in how you manage those behavioral expectations. Very interesting. A lot of great insights here. Let me ask you about this. So you, let's say this is something that every leader, it doesn't matter whether it's sales, go to market, whatever, any type of organization, the company has a team that's not clicking, right? There's something missing. There's lack of chemistry. People are arguing, disagreeing, you know, fighting, hopefully not physically or in combat <laughs> situations. <laughs> but what do you do? Like, how do you advise leaders to, like, how do you fix that? Interesting. I'll do just quick, in efforts of time, quick, interesting note on that. Like in Hell Week, for example, you do everything in boat crews. So seven-person teams, so six enlisted students and one boat crew leader, the officer. So I think yep. six, six frontline salespeople and one sales manager. Everybody's in a crew. And in Hell Week, a lot of what you do is a competition against the other crews. And that's by design because they're trying to get these teams and small units to work cohesively together, to communicate, yep. to collaborate, to you know, look out more for the person to your left and right than you do yourself, which creates an overlapping web performance. And the crews that pick that up quickly consistently win these competitions and races. These are the crews you're talking about. They don't collaborate. They have a fear of failure. Every person on the team is an individual. The leader is not effective in creating a quick winning culture and being collaborative and being empathetic about the needs of the team and, and clearly communicating a strong vision for what they're trying to accomplish, which is finish freaking hell <laughs> and win so you can have less pain because sometimes if you win, you get to sit out and rest more. And those crews, infighting ensues, finger pointing, blame. And guess what? They lose every single race. So the instructors would actually perform an interesting leadership experiment. They would swap the crew leaders of the winningest crew and losingest crew to see what happens. It's interesting okay. what happens, though, is the crew leader that was uh, in the crew that was winning all of the majority of the races is now with this crew. And that crew almost immediately goes from the back of the pack in these, let's say, these races to the middle or towards the head of the pack because they have an inspirational leader who knows how to quickly transform the culture, how to get people's minds back in the game, uh, how to get people working in a collaborative, transparent environment where they can give each other feedback and quickly course correct. And then, interestingly, the crew that was winning all the races now under new, seemingly poor leadership, they continue to win all or the majority of the races. And why would that be? It's because they've already created a cohesive winning culture that was so strong and everybody on the crew knew exactly what to do that not one single person could dismantle the strength uh, of that winning culture that they'd created. So when it comes to, yeah, pretty fascinating and it's consistent across all classes. It, it always happens this way. And so when it comes to obviously, you know, a, a team that's having issues, there's obviously fundamental foundational things there. If people are not getting along, they're competing with one another. There's even micro silos within the small team. They're not sharing information. And even worse, the leader or manager either is intentionally not doing anything about it or not capable uh, of doing something about it. And typically, oftentimes, you know, that's kind of the case. You know, we have a tendency historically to, you know, promote people into leadership and management positions who maybe aren't the best leader or manager. Maybe they don't have the desire. Maybe they don't have the skill set. And then we don't provide them the resources or training uh, to be able to. Uh, enhance the performance of a team. And so at the ultimate end of the day, you know, we call this, you know, extreme ownership and accountability and discipline uh, within the team uh, in the Naval Special Warfare community. But ultimately, let's say it's a team of five or six or seven, and they're all screwed up. You know, they're not, they're not doing what they need to do. Whose fault is that? There's only one person's fault. It's the leader's fault, ultimately. Yep. 
And that person, like I said, either doesn't have the skill set, is disengaged, one foot out the door, or just, quite frankly, is not given the proper resources uh, to be successful in their role. So and I, I know that because I've, I've done that in the past where I'm like, this is our best subject matter expert. This is our top sales guy. Let's make him VP of sales. <laughs> or you're like, no, you just took your best soldier off the battlefield. <laughs> and nor is he a leader. He's a good individual contributor. And she's a solid analytics person. So we don't, you don't necessarily make her a director of analytics, but we do it all the time because we assume our best performers in a certain area or have a certain level of subject matter. Yeah. To be leading the pack. Yeah, which is very different jobs. No, I, I couldn't agree more. That was really interesting right there and so profound. And you mentioned something. You mentioned extreme ownership. And that brings up a question. Do you know Jocko Willink? Yeah, of course. Oh, man. Yeah. So tell us yeah. more. So tell well, us about Jocko. And also tell us about David Goggins. By the way, I read Jocko's books. Uh, not all of them. But I also say that he has kids' books that I haven't read and I'm getting them for my kids. The, the warrior kid, I I this goes back to him not ever sleeping because I don't know how he has the time to crank out books. <laughs> Two hours a day. <laughs> echelon front. <laughs> and then David Goggins, I read his book. So, so tell um, me about Jocko. I mean, like, what, what's he What's he like? And like, are you guys close friends or what's going on? Yeah, no, I didn't know him that well in the teams. I actually was, I'd known his business partner, Leif Babin. They co-authored yep. Extreme Ownership together. So we've known each other since we were in advanced SEAL training. Uh, he was really close friends with one of my best friends in Buds and now still we're like godparents to each other's children. Leif and he went to the, the academy together. So I met Leif through that guy, Justin. And then subsequently just met Jocko through mainly through our initiatives in the SEAL Family Foundation. I'm on the executive board and he comes to our events and, and whatnot. And then, so, you know, I follow what they do. I've, you know, read the books. I haven't read the kids' books yet, but uh, <laughs> there's plenty of digestible things on social media that's so you can keep up with uh and then david like i mentioned before you know we went through buds together uh we were his third hell week class and then so he made it through hell week i'm just going to put this out there third hell week he was in my boat crew and somehow he made it this time I can't think <laughs> very cool so how about david goggins i mean i read his book it was incredible i mean is, is he really that i mean his whole story is he can put up with any intense amount of pain and suffering, which is like, wow, like, tell us more about him. Well, again, he's, he's the first person and his journey in mental fortitude has evolved, as you can imagine, just like it would for anybody over the years as we emotionally mature and as we really understand what our true boundaries are and how pushed, far we can push those boundaries. But we graduated together and went to Team 5 together. Then I went to a CENTCOM deployment to war in Iraq. They went to a PACOM deployment. So we were in different troops and we got back and that's when he decided he wanted to become an ultra marathon runner out of the blue. <laughs> As if, you know, being a SEAL wasn't enough. You know, he starts at the top with Googling hardest ultra marathons in the world. <laughs> and so you probably know that story about him. He found the bad water. He's like, he called him up and he's like, I want to sign up. They're like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Like, who are you? You're not even a, a runner. <laughs> right, right. You're not and known in the world of ultras. <laughs> He had like blood on his feet and he kept running like a hundred miles or something like that, right? Well, yeah, ultras are typically, you think of ultras, it's a hundred plus mile race. Like he just finished Incredible. a few months ago, the Moab 240. It's a 240 mile, like three day race. When you think about people who have such a drive to do certain things, oftentimes, and this is just, I would say this if David was here too, oftentimes it's at the expense of other things too. So when we are super passionate, I write about him and I write about, some famous rock climbers in the book and famous explorers who 
when they have such a deep passion for something, oftentimes that passion can drive them to have to put aside other important or things that we might think of as important, whether that be family yeah. or relationships or, yeah. or other types of things. But people like that are a huge source of in- inspiration for us and, and help you realize how far you can really push yourself mentally or physically or both. Um, just like his his 40% rule is similar to how we've designed SEAL training, uh, which is, a, I think they call it the rule of seven, but it's really more of a sort of a cognitive approach to understanding when when our brain starts sending those signals that we can take no more pain, we can run no lo- no further, or we, can, we can't engage in this activity or too cold to continue on. You're really only like 40% of the way there. And you have to be able to push past those boundaries and not listen to the voices and reconnect your your mind to the vision of what you're trying to accomplish. And going back to what I said about doing research on on you know, buzz candidates is you might think of this narrative like a star candidate is like you know Olympic ath- athlete, you know high academic performer. It really comes down to grit, resilience, uh, emotional maturity, and most of all, a deep passion to serve in that capacity. Like a deep, deep passion and need almost to serve as a SEAL or a Green Beret or a Delta Force operator, whatever those those really, really tough pipelines are, is the passion. And this is like in any walk of life. We're trying to achieve a lofty business goal or marry the love of our life or raise children. All these things are oftentimes wrought with peril and pain <laughs> because the things that are aren't really worth pursuing. And so it's the passion that connects us to pushing through the uncomfortable elements of achieving that goal and being comfortable uh, with those things. And then you're comfortable have the ability to continue on. Yeah, you just said something important. I mean, passion. It's, uh, I think there's not enough of a conversation in building high-performing teams around passion. Passion is used as a very soft, squishy sort of quality. And I think a lot of sales teams or sales leaders don't realize it's actually very concrete, just like leadership. People think it's fluffy and squishy, but actually it's a very concrete skill set that can be learned. It can be taught and trained really effectively if you have the right trainers, of course, like yourself. And passion is something that if you hire people with it, if you're measuring it correctly, if you can scorecard it effectively, you can get incredible people on your team that drive real performance. That's really important. By the way, and I want to rewind to something else. Tell me about the rule of seven. What exactly is the rule of seven? It's similar to the 40% rule where when your brain is sending you signals uh, that you can go no further physically or emotionally, that uh, you can go like push yourself seven times more than from where you're at. You know, seven times more. Say distance running, for example. You know, when your body is, and maybe you're not a trained runner or you aren't well prepared, but when your brain is sending signals, and these these are mental defense mechanisms to preserve the body, if my brain's telling me like, you're done. You can go no further. And your, your brain's telling you this every five minutes in hell week, for example. Uh, and yet you continue on. You make the choice to continue on. And next thing you know, you're moving again. For example, when you stop to eat, you know, they feed you like seven times in a 24-hour period during hell week because you're burning so many calories, both from the physical activity and the shivering. Uh, you can burn up to fifteen to 20,000 calories in, you know, in a day. So they're trying to pump you with food, yet... By day two, you're falling asleep every time you stop. <laughs> That's a very difficult task. But yeah. when you stop, your muscles, for example, just this is my experience, clench up so uncontrollably. The pain is, is unbearable. The sand has been ripping the flesh off your body. You're like, 
if I move again, I'll be in so much more pain than I was five minutes ago when I was moving. There's no way I can I can even get out of this chair. And next thing you know, you're not only out of the chair, but you're running down the street with a boat on your head. And then you know, incredible. the ocean to go for a long swim. Your body will keep going. <laughs> I mean, I would I would say for anyone out there in sales, you've made X number of calls or you've tried to do whatever it is you need to do to hit a great number in Q4, hit your number. Nothing is working. Think of the rule of seven. You can do seven times more, right? Seven times more, right? Seven times more. But to the point you're making, I would say, don't necessarily keep doing the same things. You know, that rule right. of insanity. Like I keep doing the same things and I get the same <laughs> result. You know, like maybe be a little more innovative and creative. About maybe I should be doing something different with my time. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I always say like, don't work harder on things that don't work. You're just going to get that much farther. Right. In the wrong direction, right? But like, yeah. you're right. I'm just talking about the effort. You can do seven times yeah. more than your effort. You can right. put up with that pain, like David Goggins, right? You you have blisters and blood on your feet, and you keep running that hundred hundred mile run. But you got to run in the right direction. I could not agree more. Um, <laughs> great lesson for for everyone out there. Well, I know very soon we will be wrapping this up. We got what another like five or so minutes. So. I guess wanted to kind of like talk to you about a, a couple of other things. So, well, before that, I do want to ask you, what is the Navy SEALs motto? Well, well, we have many. <laughs> we have many sayings like the only easy day was yesterday. The only uh, easy day was yesterday. That's the one I'm referring to. Okay, that's one of them. We have, we have an entire ethos that's basically sort of our culture manifesto, like all in, you know, a few paragraphs. But the only easy day was yesterday is kind of our oldest main mantra, yeah. I love that because <laughs> it's like meaning there you know, are if you're if you're doing the right things and you're pursuing the right goals with the right amount of effort, there are going to be no easy days because you're intentionally pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone to accomplish more, and that's not easy. I love that. I mean, it's so important for so many to hear that, and not just like hear it, but cer- certainly like let it sink in, like really ingest that. You know, this 2020 tough year, a lot of people are hurting. And I think one way to just really build that mental toughness amongst the, the actionable items you provided earlier, just think about this motto, the only easy day was yesterday. Like you got to yeah. <laughs> get ready. It could get, it could get harder, but you got to be mentally set for that. What are some yeah. of the other things in that ethos? Tell us more. Well, the, the, there's many that I like. I mean, the one, the one that I love the most that really is about mental fortitude and always pressing forward is never out of the fight. And I believe in it so wholeheartedly. I had it tattooed in my arm on Latin, uh, Latin, excuse me. And it really, I mean, it's just a good metaphor for life. You know, you're never, never be out of the fight. Never think you are out of the fight, whether it be battling cancer or saving a struggling business or a struggling marriage situation, you know, continue fighting. It, you know, life is not a, there's not a destination, it's a journey. And if you continue to push forward and think of it that way, and let's say you're setting, you know, pretty lofty, aggressive goals or taking calculated risk. You achieve that goal and maybe you fall short. So what? Move the goalposts, do it again. Course correct, apply lessons learned, and keep going. And if you do that, you're going to learn to navigate around many of the pitfalls and mistakes you've made in the past. And you'll learn to accept the inevitable adversities that you will continue to face until the day you pass on to greater things. I really like that. I mean, it's just such a great motto or saying like it really puts you in that right mindset and so important for business because it's just never easy. You're right. The other thing I wanted to ask you before we begin wrapping up is 
if any of our listeners, again, senior executives want to actually recruit from Navy SEALs for their teams, for sales, for example, or go to market, marketing, whatever it is, um, you said yourself you were a CMO, right? Like sales or marketing. H- how do they find it? Are there any organizations that, that bring Navy SEALs into the business world that we can tap into? There are. There, there, there are a handful now. The, the two I would recommend, one is called Elite Meat. So Elite Meat, me being okay. EBT. And they, they help. They're very niche. They help transitioning special operators and fighter pilots into the world of business and entrepreneurship. Predominantly business. They're, I mean, because it's a course. They're, they have to be selected for it. They groom them. I've spoken at these events, just providing advice and you know, kind of the pitfalls of my journey and, and how I found ultimate you know success in certain areas. And it's interesting because they're sponges. I was nervous to go talk to them. I was like, these guys have been longer than I was. They've done great things too, and they were sponges because the high performance mindset wants to continue to be a high performer in new endeavors. But in these new endeavors, they don't have the experience they do. Their home is the world of military, and now they're transitioning out to the world of business. Many very applicable attributes, of course, especially when it comes to leadership and drive and passion. But from technical ability, oftentimes there's a big gap there. And the other one is the Honor Foundation, another great Honor foundation. No, I think this is great. I think this leaves a lot of great opportunities for listeners to go out and, and find folks like yourself with the kind of leadership traits and ethos that you have for our team. So with that, I want to ask you, how do people connect with you? I mean, obviously, they can go to Amazon and find you there and buy your books. And I think a lot of listeners may want to reach out to you directly. How do they find you? Uh, sure. Yes, the book obviously is on Amazon and, and all online retailers. Uh, I mean, again, Embrace the Suck, the Navy SEAL way to an extraordinary life. On social media, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. So just doing a search for Brent Gleason on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, it's Brent underscore Gleason. And then on Twitter, just at Brent Gleason. So that is where you can find me. I also have a Forbes leadership column that I write on about every other week. So if you do a search for Brent Gleason Forbes, you'll find my author page and all of the articles that come up there. There's probably hundreds of them. So I'm doing it for a while. (laughs) That's great. This was really insightful, really interesting. When we say top insights from the best, no doubt you're one of the best. I mean, such, I mean, we, we need more people with that kind of mental toughness in the sales world and certainly learning a lot from you is incredible. So thank you so much for making the time today. Really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day today. Thank you. All right. You too, brother. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.